Hello and welcome to part two or session two of the attributes of God. This time we're going to look at the Trinity. I'm going to start with something written by a man called Frederick Faber. One God, one majesty, there is no God but thee. Unbounded and unextended unity. Unfathomable sea, all life is out of thee. And thy life is thy blissful unity. This time we're going to look at the Trinity. Let's pray, shall we, before we begin. Father, I bow before your uncreated majesty. I surrender myself afresh to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, without you as teacher, I cannot begin to understand your unfathomable sea. Help me, Lord Jesus, to grasp as much as I can with my finite man, mind how vast you are, to honour, revere and love you as far above all, my creator, sustainer, saviour, deliverer and friend. I say with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him? Teach me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You will do best with these studies if you take time over them and check out the scriptures because Father will speak to you as you do. Last time we saw that God is. The question we're going to begin to ask now is, he is, but just who is he? What's he like? How do we know we can trust him? We can have some wrong ideas. Contrary to some popular opinion, he hasn't changed because he's immutable. We'll look at that later. This means he's still as holy as he was. He hasn't relaxed his standards. He's not become culturally relevant and adapted to our ideas. Just so you know, he would say to us. He's not a mate, a buddy, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. This is a wrong view of him. Knowing him... Intimacy, not over-familiarity, is what he wants. He's not God Almighty, Big G, or the man upstairs, but a loving Heavenly Father to whom affection, respect and honour is due. We may think God is a big ogre, and if we put a step wrong, he will have our head off. This is wrong too, because it causes us to have a response of fear of punishment. Jesus has dealt with that. He took our punishment. He's made us right with God. That's what justification is about. We can come boldly into his presence with joy because of Jesus' outpoured blood. We need to know who he is to have a right view of the majesty on high so our joy might be full. For a start then, God is far higher than we are. We are pipsqueaks, as Roger Price would say, grains of sand. Have a look at Isaiah 55, 8 to 11. God is so immense, even our greatest knowledge of him can only be very slight, which makes it all the more amazing that he wants our company. He loves every connection he has with us. Is that God is not like anything. You cannot make a comparison because there is nothing like him in the whole of the universe. He is who he is. 
He is vast and he is altogether lovely. He is incomparably lovely in his nature. He is all-powerful, but he is so beautiful, so courteous, so absolutely lovely, so holy, so beyond us. And he calls us to come. We must not try to oversimplify him in any way. And we can very easily have a God of our own imagination who allows us to have what we want and live exactly as we please. Galatians 5.13, Paul says, Don't use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh. We need to think rightly about him. Because if we get that right, everything else, all our relationships, fall into place effortlessly. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. Fear, healthy awe, is largely a missing ingredient today. People generally have no fear of the Lord at all, probably because he's only slightly larger than they are in their eyes. So we hear them saying patronising things like, God is on the move, as though he has been slumbering. Beloved, it's us that need to awaken, not him. He never stops moving, never stops creating. It's we who have the difficulty keeping up with him. More courtesy, more respect is needed in the presence of the Holy One. The Bible clearly tells us in more than one place that fear, a proper fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. Take a look at Psalm 11110. Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10. It follows that you don't have any wisdom if you don't fear him. You need to be aware of this. Let's take as an example of this Psalm 50. And this is a psalm of judgment against Israel. One of the things it draws out is that they thought God was just like them. And he is about to disabuse them. God is declaring he will judge the nation for their apostasy. They'd fallen away from him. This was a very real problem that consistently caused Israel to miss him. Verse 21, all this you have done and I kept silent. So you thought that I was just like you, sanctioning evil. Oh boy, could we be accused like this in our day of sanctioning evil. Their basic problem, you thought I was like you. And that's where the mistake was. Never, ever, ever, ever let it enter your mind that God is slightly bigger than you. Because he isn't. He is vast. We are created in his image, yes, but that doesn't make us like him. Here we observe Israel has reduced God down to their own level. They could almost be heard to be saying, God, what are you doing? A totally wrong attitude, but it's the same one that they exhibited in the wilderness when they despised the food he gave them, manna. He gave them this and they complained about it. Numbers 11, 1 to 6. They little understood that in despising the manna, they were despising Jesus, who in the Gospel of John describes himself as the bread of life, come down from heaven. 
Those that fear the Lord are very careful how they speak about and to him, and they see great revelations of him. Malachi three sixteen and 17 They receive the knowledge of the holy, and they have trouble describing him. They run out of words. We saw it last time. They fall flat on their faces and can't describe what they see. Like, as, the appearance of, this is the language they use. It's the best they can do. Face like lightning. Not like anything really, but that's the nearest I can get. The best I can do. And they're flat on their faces. They fall like dead. No over-familiarity there. They are overcome. John in Revelation and we see exactly the same thing. I fell at his feet as dead. Revelation 1 verse 17. The effect, the hallmark if you like, of someone who knows God. The flesh dies. To know God is actually the great secret of everything. The reverent fear of the Lord is largely missing in the church today. Job knew something as he replies to his wife in Job 2.8. Shall we receive good and not evil? Can't he do as he pleases? Has the clay any right to rail against the potter? Job knew God and he had some idea about sovereignty too and we'll be looking at that attribute next time. So we've got to come to a new place. The writer of Ecclesiastes, now here's a man who's out of fellowship, but this is the truth. We find in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2, do not be rash with your mouth. Watch what you say when you come into the presence, common courtesy in the presence of an uncommon God. Maturity begins when we start thinking rightly about who God is, not who we think he is. So let's go on and discover more about El Supremo, El Supremo, His Majesty, the King. The Trinity then. To meditate, to think deeply about the three persons of the Trinity is to walk through the Garden of Eden again and in so doing to tread on holy ground. Any effort to perceive the incomprehensible, the mystery of the Trinity, must forever remain futile in actuality. But we must try as best we can or we will fall short in our reverential response to the Almighty, as we may be found to have a lesser thought of him than he deserves. What we think about God is the single most important thing in our lives. It will drive how we live everything we are and everything we do and say. Julian of Norwich said this, God of your goodness, give me yourself, for you are enough for me. I can ask for nothing less that is completely to your honour, and if I do ask anything less, I shall always be in want. Only in you have I all. Amen, Lord. There is a way in which we need some straightforward theology at this point. We need facts to add to our understanding, limited though it will be at the end of the day. To qualify this, I mean his triunity, sovereignty, immutability, omniscience, omnipotence and omnipresence. 
These may not seem relevant when looking at the attributes of God we're most familiar with and the ones we like best. His goodness, kindness, love, long-suffering, jealousy and holiness. But unless we know as much as we possibly can about him, we will fall into error very easily and we can become casual rather than reverential when we talk and think about him. Call to mind the truth of A.W. Tozer's comment. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This she has done not deliberately but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation more tragic. That's a quote from the knowledge of the holy. In this brash 21st century, it's quite obvious we need to get back to a right awe and fear of God. For fear of God is but the beginning of wisdom and we are all desperately in need of that commodity. And there is a highway of holiness, Isaiah 35, 8, that he calls us up to walk upon again as his chosen people. Let us not ignore his voice. Psalm 95, 7, Hebrews 3, verse 7, Hebrews 3, 15 and Hebrews 4, 7. I urge you to look these scriptures up because when God says something four times, we really need to do what he's telling us. Once should be enough, but it never is. The early church fathers, you know, fought for and won the doctrines that we now take for granted. And this particular teaching on the Trinity brought about a great difference of opinion around 300 AD between two men, Arius and Athanasius. The so-called Arian controversy was a series of theological disputes that arose between them. The most important of these concern the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Arius contended that Jesus wasn't God, but a created being and therefore a God, not God himself. The deep divisions created by the dispute were brought about by the Emperor Constantine's efforts to unite Christianity and establish a single, imperially approved version of the faith during his reign, a marriage of state and religion. Arius had been exiled, but after a time Constantine relented and desired to reinstate him by investing him with the office of bishop. Because of the heresy he was promulgating, Bishop Alexander prayed earnestly that God would remove him. An amazing historical fact is that one of his prayers in this regard was discovered where he pleads with God to take him or Arius home before more damage is done. On the day of the investiture, Arius was being carried with some pomp through the streets to the cathedral, but sudden gastric pain caused him to ask his bearers to stop. He alighted and entered a nearby building. When he didn't return for some time, a party was dispatched to search for him. He was found in a pool of blood with his head in a latrine. In awesome fashion, 
Alexander's desperate prayer for his removal had been answered. These disagreements divided the early church into two opposing theological factions for over 55 years, from the time before the First Council of Nicaea in 325 until after the First Council of Constantinople Constantinople in 381. Though there was no formal resolution or formal schism, the Trinitarian group ultimately gained the upper hand in the imperial church. Outside of the Roman Empire, they were not immediately so influential and Arianism continued to be preached inside and outside the empire for some time. This heresy, as I said, was still found today in such cults as the Jehovah's Witnesses, where Jesus is held to be a prophet and a good man, but not God. Now you know where it started. Right back there, three or four hundred years after the death of Jesus. These facts may seem unimportant, but true Christianity is the only religion that accepts that Jesus Christ is God. None of the others do. So asking what a denomination or group of believers believes is a very good test. If you're in any doubt about whether they are truly his, inquire what their stance is on the Trinity and you'll soon find out what they believe. Again, one of the most wonderful ways to test if a person is born again is to ask whether they believe in the Trinity, the triune nature of God, one in essence, three in personality. Anyone who is in a cult will tell you they don't believe that Jesus is God. He's a prophet or a good man, but he isn't God. As born-again believers, we accept the fact of the Trinity by the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. The reason it's so important is that without Jesus being God, we are not saved, and bless them, neither are they. In fact, not one of the cults, from Jehovah's Witnesses to the Mormons, the Muslims and the Jews, believe that there are three personalities in the Godhead. Indeed, the Koran states quite unequivocally that anyone who believes that God has more than one personality is an infidel. To Muslims, God is one person not three personalities. The knowledge of the triune nature of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is a given to us who believe, and it's given by the Holy Spirit within us who bears the witness. We just know that they are co-equal and co-eternal, uncreated majesty, that in no way implies that we have got God sewn up or that we can explain him it's simply that we know from experience that they exist as three persons who are one in essence co-equal and co-eternal before the foundation of the world was laid there existed a community of connected persons living in deep and abiding joy and love we have always been delighted and thrilled with one another. We have joyfully shared a majesty and a sovereignty. We live in the place of awesome, outrageous joy. We exist in perfect love and astonishing goodness. Our relationships are delightful, fun, purposeful and deeply intentional. The Father delights to bring all things under the Son, who is the Beloved.
His people are lovingly, intentionally placed in an assigned position in the sun. They have a standing unequalled in history. They are a chosen race, a people who are distinguished with royalty, a beloved nation appointed in the earth to bear the name of the beloved. They have a position and a divine connection that provides them with outrageous favour and which guarantees an elevated status as a new creation of people born out of resurrection power by their inclusion in the Christ. Graham Cook's uh, confirming word there from the Missing Peace CD, uh, Soaking CD, track six. We do tend to take for granted the Bible that we hold in our hands and forget or are ignorant of the fact that Satan has always contested the truths contained in it. So in our creed we state we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Ghost. A spirit of a statement of fact that Jesus is one with the Father. And we get this from the Apostles' Creed, which says this I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. God never changes. What he has always been, he will always be. He is immutable. They have always been and you will meet them all. They have always been fellowshipping and loving and talking with one another and you have now joined their circle as part of the heavenly community. All three mutually submit to each other and promote the other. Jesus says, I don't speak my words, but those of the Father. The Father sends the Holy Spirit at Jesus' request to proclaim the Son. Round it goes in a circle of love, mutual submission and admiration. Coming back to God himself, what a thrill it is to speak of him. He is one of the most wonderful things we can think or talk about. We cannot understand him, but we can have a comprehension of him through the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for those men who fought for the word of God that we have today. The thing that sets us apart as Christians, then, is that we believe in the three persons. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, the visible member of the Godhead. No one has seen God the Father because God is spirit and it is by the blessed Holy Spirit whom again we cannot see we discern these things. It's a mystery, we can't understand, it isn't like anything. We know this, that without a triune God we are not saved. Our problem is sin has separated us from God by an unbridgeable gap. Jesus brings God and man back together again. If Jesus is not God, you are not saved. He has to be. Job 9, 32 and 33. And Job sees the problem. 
We need someone who can represent fully both sides, a mediator who totally identifies with God and man. Jesus puts his hand on God and on you and me and brings us back together again. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. This is why the Trinity is so vital. No man can bring you back to God. Jesus has to be true humanity and undiminished deity. He cannot be less. It's very important that we see this. Jesus wasn't half God and half man. He was 100% both, united forever. If the Trinity does not exist, we have no salvation. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. Our God is one. The plurality of God in the Old Testament demonstrates the Trinity. Lots of scriptures from here on, so have your Bible to hand. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God the Hebrew word here is Elohim and it is plural. The I-M on the end of the word always indicates a plural. For instance, cherubim, seraphim, they are plurals, more than one of them. So right here in the beginning, God is spoken of as more than one. He is referred to as plural. Dropping down to verse 26 and we see that God said, Let us make man after our likeness. Here, God singular says, let us. This clearly indicates more than one. It also shows a discussion went on in the Godhead concerning the creation of man. Father, Son and Holy Spirit talk about man's creation and the dignity bestowed upon him. Let's make him like us. In our singular image, but in three parts, like us. He isn't us, but he will resemble us. Man then becomes a body which houses his soul and his spirit that connects him with his maker. Body, soul and spirit, the triune nature of man. Man made in their image and the three of them are involved. Genesis 3.22 after the fall and the Lord God now says man has become as one of us. Plural again. You can see many instances Genesis 11.7 and the Tower of Babel. Isaiah 6.8-10, a little more difficult as we need to identify which member of the Godhead is speaking. The voice of the Lord, singular, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Plural again. Then in verses 9 and 10, the Holy Spirit warns Isaiah that no one will listen to him, but he's to tell them nonetheless. All three members of the Godhead clearly involved. Moving to the New Testament and Acts 28-25, Paul says colloquially, You have had your chance, now I'm going to the Gentiles. And he quotes from this passage in Isaiah saying, The Holy Spirit spoke the truth when he spoke about you. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. In Isaiah, it doesn't identify which person is speaking, but here we find it was the Holy Spirit, an example of more than one member of the Godhead being involved in the dialogue. Make a little detour and look at some appearances of God. 
He is described as the king invisible in Romans 1.20, Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 11.27 and 1 Timothy 1.17. God is invisible. He cannot be seen. Jesus says of the Father in John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. And he says that God is spirit, John 4.24. God the Father has never been seen. God the Son has declared him. Jesus is the only one who has seen and declares the Father, meaning he demonstrates what the Father is like. He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9, giving us a clear indication of two separate persons. So Jesus is the visible member of the Godhead and we need to look into the Old Testament to see appearances of him. We discover he appeared all over the place. He walked and talked with Adam in the garden. In Exodus 24.9, Moses saw the God of Israel. Not only did he see him, he ate with him. And these were appearances of Jesus. Of Moses, it is said, God spoke face to face. That is Jesus, and Moses is having a conversation with him. Later, Jesus will refer to the fact that he knows Moses. Have a look at Mark twelve twenty six. Going back to Genesis 18, Abraham has visitors, and they are described as talking as a man talks with his friend. What a beautiful description of this relationship between maker and man. In Exodus 3, 1-6, we find Moses meeting his saviour and the God of his fathers face to face. Cooling his heels for 40 years in the desert, he learns the lesson that it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, after his flight from Egypt. God is saying, Mo, burn with my zeal and energy, not yours. Moses sees a bush burning but not consumed and he approaches it and he's told to take off his shoes because the place is holy ground. And he hears the voice that changes his voice, changes his life, but not before he experienced the fear in the presence of God. The Hebrews believed if you saw God, death would be the result. But we will see many did see him and lived to record their subsequent adventures. The angel of the Lord in the, New, in the Old Testament is one of the titles of the Lord Jesus and it's always capitalised. That's how you can tell it's Jesus, not just an angel. Moses then, back in Exodus 3, 5, and God calls him, Put off your shoes, you are on holy ground. I am the God of your fathers. He's afraid to look upon God. Who shall I say sent me? God says, I am. Moses was to say, I am, has sent me. But who did Moses speak to? Well, it was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord. And in Exodus fourteen nineteen, Pharaoh is chasing them and the angel of the Lord is referred to again. Exodus thirteen twenty one says it's God himself. The Lord went before in a pillar of fire. His presence went with them. God moves from in front of them and comes behind them. Brilliant. The angel of the Lord and God are the same person, not an ordinary angel. Genesis 18.1 And the Lord appears to Abraham. There were three visitors here, two angels and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The angels are dispatched to Sodom. Abraham has a conversation about it with the Lord. But the Lord says he will go down and look for himself. Genesis 18.21 God never takes anyone's word for anything. He goes and sees for himself. The outcry had come up against him, but he's going to make sure it's as bad as he's been told. And in the event, it's worse and the rest is history. Proof if you needed it that God hears prayers. Whether they are from the saved or the unsaved, he is altogether lovely. And we can cite numerous examples of appearances of God in the Old Testament. Genesis 32, and Jacob wrestles with a man until his name is changed to Israel, Prince of God. Prince of God. Genesis 32, 30, and he called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Hosea 12, 2-5 tells us it was the Lord Jesus. Judges 13, 3-25, and the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah, father of Samson. The angel descended in the flame of the altar and they fall flat on their faces. We shall surely die, we've seen God. His wife had it right, no they won't. The angel had come with a promise. Isaiah 6 verse 1, I saw the Lord, what he sees is God the Son. 2 Chronicles 3 1 and tells us David saw him. The Lord appeared to David on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. In the New Testament, Hebrews 11 takes on a new wonder. These people knew what they were talking about. Most of them had seen the Lord. Isaiah 7.14 tells him one of the titles of the promised Messiah. Call his name Emmanuel, God with us, proof if you needed it, that Jesus is God. Isaiah 9 verse 6, again pointing to the one who was to come. Unto us a child is born, humanity, a son is given, divinity, and his name shall be called, amongst others, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jeremiah 23, 5, and Jesus is described as a righteous branch, and this prophecy is yet future. Finally, some other scriptures to show us that there is a trinity. Isaiah 48, 1 to 16, you need to have a look at that one. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned together in this passage. Verse 2, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. This is a name for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, and God himself, hearken unto me, my chosen one. I am he, first, last, the title of the Lord Jesus in Revelation, Alpha and Omega. Verse 13, my hand also has laid the foundation God talking, I, even I, have spoken. Verse 16, and his spirit is mentioned. Here are three people mentioned in one passage. The Lord, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. It may be the plainest statement of the Trinity working together that we can find. So when Jesus speaks about Moses and Abraham, he talks about people he knows. He was there in person, speaking with them face to face. To end then, Numbers six twenty four to 26, where you find that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all going to bless you. And so am I. God bless you. Next time we will look 
at the sovereignty of God.